Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Here at the Women in Public Policy Program, which basically gives me the honor of hosting this seminar. Um, at WAF, we are devoted to closing gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. And that uh, one small contribution to that enormous agenda is um, this seminar. And so um, while actually though, while we're sitting relatively intimately in this room right now in the seminar, I'd also like to welcome um, the many folks who listen to this seminar via the podcast. And we've had over 18,000 um, downloads thus far um, of the podcast. So um, uh, for the people who are in the room, but also for the people who are um, going to be tuning in, I'd like to ask that, um, I, we have a few ground rules. One is obviously that people um, turn off cell phones. Are we are recording today? Yes. And um, and that also when we ask questions, um, that they genuinely be questions and uh, relate to the topic of the speaker's uh, presentation. So now I'm going to turn to introduce our speaker today. Uh, Anna Rauta is uh, an assistant professor of economics at the University of Mannheim, and um, she's going to be uh, talking about can financial incentives reduce the baby gap, which I'm very curious about. But beforehand, let me give you a couple of little bits of introduction. Her um, research interests are, are broadly in applied economics, mainly labor economics, public economics, and the economics of education. She's worked intensively on uh, the effects of universal childcare attendance on children's readiness. So um, thinking more broadly about uh, uh, work and family implications from an econ lens. Um, we are honored to have her as a WAF affiliate this year. She's also a research fellow at the Center for Research and Analysis of Migration at the University, at University College London, a research as, um, associate at um, ZEW and a research affiliate of SACIFO, as well as the Center for Economic Policy Research. Um, she has recently um, won the UN Best Paper Award in Gender Economics, uh, the Theme Award, which was um, formerly the Young Economist Award at the European Economic Association meetings, and the SACIFO Distinguished um, Affiliate Award in Employment and Social Protection. So we have with us a true uh, 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 young thought leader in this field. And so please join me in welcoming Thank you very much for the, for the pleasant um, introduction. I hope I can kind of um, um, build up to, to this, <laughs> or I'm not sure. But um, yeah, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to present my work here. So um, what I'm presenting on is a major reform in maternity leave benefits, which happened in Germany in 2007. And I'm investigating whether these, this increase in financial incentives reduce something which I call the baby gap, which is mainly the um, differences in fertility between high and low educated women. So um, we all know that across the last five decades there was a tremendous increase in women's educational attainment as well as their labor market participation. So women's opportunity costs to have children have really soared over time. So what we see across all developed countries now, they're actually decreasing birth rates and below replacement fertility. So I believe that even in the US, which is usually a country marked by very high fertility, um, it's below replacement, and um, in particular so for high educated women. So um, in economics, um, I mean, there's a lot of um, um, papers written about the sort of negative relationship 
between women's educational level or her, her potential wage and the fertility level. Yeah? And this all goes back to this argument about these opportunity costs of fertility. So basically, if you have a kid, you drop out of the labor market, and it's more costly for you if your potential wage is simply higher. Yeah? Especially in a country like a more conservative labor market like Germany, where women actually drop out for longer once they are actually had, had a kid. Yeah? So just to kind of set the stage here, so in Germany, um, before this reform happened, after 12 months, only 20% of women have returned to the labor market, and after 24 months, only 30%. Um, I don't know what, sorry, what happened to the slide. Um, the, um, sorry, can we just pause for a second? Yeah. Um, for some reason, the, it's, it's, it's distorted, the, the whole slide doesn't fit anymore. Okay. Do you see what I mean? Like the, yeah, it's like, yeah. So by the way, if you... Feel free to interrupt me anytime if you have any questions. Can I, how about I'll ask a question while she fusses with mm -hmm. this? Um, are you also considering marriage markets? So cause that could be another reason why more educated women don't end up having as many children, right? So there's the argument that you know women marry up, and then once they're educated and high achieving, the population of eligible men declines. It's just long. So I'm not. Um, so I'm not actually looking at the reasons of why high educated women have a lower fertility rate. What I'm actually looking at in this paper here is now we have a reform in maternity leave benefits. Can this somehow affect the socioeconomic composition of fertility, given all of the reasons why the fertility might be lower? Yeah. So this is just basically just tweaking at one angle of this. There might be several explanations for why the fertility differs. I'm not going to, to delve into that. So just, just to give you an idea, if you actually look at the, um, if we just look at the um, fertility levels by education level, this is for cohorts born at 64 and 69. So these are women um, who are at the end of their fertility cycle. Um, what we see is for um, the US, low educated on average have end up with more, many more kids, 2.5, than tertiary educated women. This is data from the census. In Germany, the um, difference in the average number of children on average is lower because the fertility rates are also lower. It's usually one of those countries like Japan, South Korea, Italy, which is marked by very low fer total fertility rate. But we see this very stark difference between low educated and tertiary educated. Similar pattern actually emerges for the UK. Um, now, if we look at the percent of childless women, there's actually a very big gap. So this has always been like very prominent in the public debate in Germany was the fact that close to th a third of women, tertiary educated women, never actually have a child. Yeah? Versus 18% of low educated women. Yeah. Uh, what is low educated? So low educated here in um, Germany, these are women who only have high school degree and no vocational <coughs> training or tertiary education. I have to look up again how I define it for the US. I think it's maybe people who do not have a high school degree, because that kind of matches the, um, the average, the, the, the share of the population. Yeah, in Germany, most people actually finished high school. High school yeah. So um, if we look at countries, a country which is you know, always in a public debate for very progressive family policies, which have been implemented in the 60s and 70s already, if we look at Sweden, we do not see such a stark gap in the average number of children as well as the percentageness of childlessness between low and low educated tertiary educated. 
I'm not saying that this is causal, this is only due to family policies, but it might be an indicator that this is the case. So this is not a pattern which this pattern seems to be somehow muted in those um, countries with very progressive family leave policies. So now, why do we even care? I mean, if you know, we might just care about the total fertility rate, why do we care about who has got children? And this is a sort of slightly non-PC argument, but this has potentially distribution impacts for future generations. Yeah. So if we know, we know that there is a positive correlation between maternal education and children's outcome, the net fiscal gain of a child to a high educated woman is simply higher. And also, we might also um, just worry about the fact that it's, it, is, it somehow hinders women to actually acquire education if they know they will actually you know, have, have to have fewer children. Yeah, there's a higher cost of having children. Okay, so the question I'm trying to answer here is, um, I'm trying to answer how for, um, maternity leave actually affects fertility, especially socioeconomic composition. So many governments run several kinds of pronatalist policies. So they could be off there from cash transfer to families, tax benefits, and most of these instruments actually are more lump sum payments or fixed rate payments, independent of income. So a lot of these policy instruments actually affect many women with lower opportunity costs. So if we then actually, if we concentrate on something which we call here, we call generally parental leave, every OECD country except the US, apart from the two states, have federally funded parental leave. This normally incorporates job protection as well as some replacement of earnings. But the way these, the earnings are um, compensated, that differs a lot across countries. So you have these fla flat payment systems um, which have been in place in Austria, in the UK after a few months, as well as Germany up to 2007. So Austria actually, interestingly, they followed the German model and actually changed the German model fairly recently. Um, in the Nordic countries, as well as Canada, benefits are increasing with mothers' pre-birth earnings. So in the first case, the flat payments basically compensate the lower earning women a lot, high, a lot more because the replacement rates, replacement rates is basically benefits you can get divided by your earnings, potential earnings, would be increasing. Whereas if, and for the second case, if the benefits are increasing with mother's pre-birth earnings, the replacement rate is basically constant. Yeah? So basically, the, the first payment system, as well as the other pronatalist policies, they are most advantages for um, lower income women and families. Okay? So what I study is the German reform in 2007, which which changed from this flat payment system here to the, um, to the earnings replacement, earnings related system. What I basically compare is how did the fertility rates for groups who have benefited a lot from these reforms, i.e. who had high pre-birth earnings, who now saw a large increase in potential benefits they could get, how did their fertility increase versus those women's who had low earnings to start with, for whom not that much change actually through the reform. So that's kind of a sort of brief outlook on the identification strategy I apply. Okay, so just to give you an, a quick overview of the, the sort of, in a nutshell, about the total parental benefits pre versus post 2007. So what we see here on the, um, I'm just trying, sorry, this is not working. 
So <laughs> the screen, um, it doesn't shine the, it won't, you can't point. Ah, okay, I can't point to the screen. I was, okay, so. Show it with your hand. Yeah, mm -hmm. I will do. So what we see mm -hmm. here is, so um, pre-reform, women were entitled to 7,200 euros maximum in total. And after the reform, and, th and the average which was paid was around 4,000. Um, Post-reform, benefits were, there were minimum benefits paid to women who have not been working before. And on low earnings, then there was a sort of replacement rate which went down from 100% to 67%. Okay, that's why we get this sort of non-linearity here. So for most women, actually, 67% of pre-work earnings were compensated up to this point here, which started at net earnings around 33,000 uh, 33, euros, where only about 3% of the population actually worked in the earnings population in my, in my data set. Yeah. So um, you'll be surprised actually how low the um, distribution of net earnings actually is in Germany for women. Because a lot of women work part-time on small hours. That's, that's why I'm not looking at full-time working women. That's you have excluded full-time working women? No, no. Just, they, they just don't happen to show up? They do show up as well. Okay. But this is, I mean, this is sort of gross earnings here. This is net earnings. This is gross earnings is around 70,000 euros. So that's pretty high for women. Yeah. Yeah. Is it per month or per year? This is the, the total parental benefits. So here on the, sorry, on the, on the x-axis here, I show the pre-birth net earnings in euros. But per month or per year? So this is for over the whole year, the benefits they can receive. So pre Reform women were entitled for each child to a maximum of seven seven thousand euros, and um, after the reform, the benefits were up to twenty one thousand euros per child. But the earnings that you talk about, the three percent of the women, are that's a salary per month. No, that's per year. Yeah. Sorry, here I plot yearly earnings. So this was the function. So before the reform was um, took place, there was no sort of income. Uh, um, it was not income related. Post reform was income related and dependent on the net earnings in the previous year prior to giving birth. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's a substantial increase. So some women actually, on average, high educated women, they receive ten thousand euros more for each child. Yeah. So it's it's not a huge nudge, but um, it's fairly substantial. So the, um, I mean, most of the reasons the government proposed or put forward were sort of of the sort of quality concerns that to, to incentivize, um, you know, for, for, to, to compensate women for the opportunity cost and so on. But there was actually prone, a very strong pronatal argument here, which was actually done by, um, which was put forward by Chancellor Merkel at an employer-employee um, meeting. And she said that the supporter family used to be the supporter families in need. We face the problem that 40% of tertiary educated women do not have children. This number is wrong. She was just looking at all tertiary educated. Some of them have kids later on. A country which calls itself highly developed cannot afford such a situation. So this is actually, it was kind of hard to find that quote. I've never actually seen it in the public debate, but this clearly, this clearly, this clearly stated that um, the idea behind the reform was also to incentivize these women actually to have children. Yeah? 
yeah, to close this, this gap in childlessness or fertility rates between high and low educated women or high or low educated earners. I'm just curious, so one way to close the gap would be to increase the number of children that um, more wealthy women are having, but you could also decrease the number of children that um, lower income people are having. Is that just because like we just replacement rate is, it, you still want the replacement rate to be higher in general? Or? I mean, generally, especially for public pension systems. Okay. Um, so yeah, the German public pension system, pensions are cut from year to year just because there's just, there's um, there's just enough kids, yeah. Okay. So you basically, you want to, you, you want to replace okay. total fertility, right, yeah. And presumably you get more out of it if you replace, yeah. it's, it's also more costly to replace the fertility rate of those women at the high end because yeah. they're less elastic. So, okay, so what I do is I um, study, in the first paper really to study the effects on the fertility of a change to this earnings-dependent parental benefit system. Um, what I exploit for identification, I exploit differential changes across the income distribution. I exploit the, the fact that at the higher end of the income distribution, the shift from the pre to the post-reform period in financial incentives is really high, whereas for the lower end, not much actually happened. And I can do the same thing, because looking at earnings, might be a bit problematic, there might be endogenous earnings adjustment if women react immediately to the reform by increasing the earnings, which I do not find much evidence for in the short run. Um, but I can also look at the effects by education groups. Discounting, <coughs> basically just relying on the same argument that high educated women have higher wages and they actually see an increase in their financial incentives to have a kid. Okay. So I estimate the effect of benefits on the probability of having a child exploiting for identification differential changes across the income distribution and across the education distribution. And I will go and explain my empirical strategy for you. For the ones who are not that familiar with sort of econometric techniques, I also will illustrate everything graphically, what I'm doing. Yeah, so hopefully everyone can follow this. So what do I add to the literature? So as I said before, the literature was focused mainly on cash transfers and welfare programs and these really set incentives for lower income mothers. Yeah, so what we do not really know is, um, even though we know that for the pro programs which have, which is, which have been, been studied, um, such as universal child benefits, welfare programs for the US, and um, some sort of um, um, tax benefits for Canada, these have actually mainly worked on the margin for the low income women. So, they're, they're see, these seem to be um, reacting to these financial incentives, but what we do not really know is whether the higher educated women, they might be actually less, less elastic. Do they actually react to financial incentives? And that's what I'm trying to, to figure out. So there is, on earnings-related parental leave, there's only so far some tentative evidence of how it affects different groups. So there's a paper on Sweden by Björklund in 2006 <coughs> where he basically showed over time that there was some form of narrowing in the fertility rates between low educated and um, high educated. And that was seemed to coincide with the introduction of paid parental leave in Sweden. And Hackman and Walker in the Econometrica paper they actually see that over time, a woman's wage is a less and less good predictor of, um, of the cost of fertility in Sweden. And this also seemed to coincide with the introduction of those policies. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious about this literature. 
Uh, you talk about it mostly as an incent economic incentives of the mother. Mm -hmm. uh, in Sweden, this debate has also sometimes focused, as you know, on the economic incentives of the fathers, like these higher ceilings are expected to impact on father's behavior. Mm -hmm. um, so in this German debate, or in the literature, do you think we should mainly think of the household, or should we think really think of the mother only, yeah. or what is the so this is, if, if I have time, I'll give you an outlook on a, on a paper I'm working on at the moment where I basically see that this reform seems to have affected paternity establishment. So basically, fathers are now more willing to sign up declaring that they are the father. So I hopefully can, see, can show you uh, a few results on that. So in the first year, there was a, I'm, I'm not discussing this here, but there was a, um, there is a, an element of paternity leave with this reform, which has been extended in the last few years. But in the first, uh, in the first years of the reform, only 18% of fathers took two months of additional leave. So what this policy did was mainly to change the benefits for the mother, but it also introduced two daddy months for the father. So these two daddy months basically meant they were, they would, the father would forgo these potential benefits if he did not take this leave, but only 18% of men actually took this leave. And I'm going to hopefully come back to this at the end of the talk if I still have some time. <coughs> mm -hmm. How many months total are there in Germany? So, 12 months. Uh -huh. 12 months, but you have job protection for 36 months. Uh -huh. yeah. And the job protection was unchanged. Before that, there were two options. You could take the benefits for 12 months or 24 months. And a lot of women actually take out 24 months anyway. So, and, but the job, the main thing was the job protection was actually left untouched by this reform. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to show you now is do financial incentives to have a child which are targeted rather to higher earners and higher educated, are these also effective? Okay, so just a very quick overview of the reform. So what was the reform again? It moved from the system of means-tested transfers, which were mainly targeted at low-income families, to an earnings-related benefit system. Benefits were fully publicly funded, and they were paid for 12 months. There was job protection, which was in place for 36 months. That was left unchanged by this reform. And the reform dates were as, as follows. And that, that was just to, for you to keep in mind for the first descriptive evidence I'm going to show you. So the plans were announced in May, June 2006. The law was passed September, November 2006. And the new system was in place from the 1st of January 2007. This was fairly unexpected because the, this reform was basically proposed by the Social Democratic Party as a kind of last push to win this election. Right? Merkel won again, but then they thought, oh, this is actually a very good idea, and then the conservatives took over this reform. So people did not really expect this to be in place, so we do not, we do not um, worry that around the 1st of January there was already you know, an increase in infertility or something due to this reform. Um, so again, the government really stressed the sort of paradigm shift in poli um, family policy. This, um, the new b maternity benefits were supposed to provide financial means for parents to look after their child during the first year, prevent large income drops, enhance the economic independence of both parents, fairly compensate the opportunity cost of childbearing. So what I actually saw, I also looked at some of the labor market effects and, and sort of um, usage of social security. And that seems to actually drop as well in the first year. So it did somehow improve the economic independence of women. And yeah, I'm quite excited about this, the, 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 the paternity establishment channel now, because I think it's just something you just do, would not necessarily expect for someone like this. 
So let me show you some first descriptive evidence here. So what I plot here, so these are the months to the cutoff here. So the cutoff here is, um, that's nine months after passing of the law. Okay. So what we can see, what I plot here is just average monthly birth rate per thousand women. There's seasonality corrected because, you know, people like to have kids and some months more than others. And what we really see here, there is actually, it's also statistically significant, there is a jump here in the birth rate nine months after passing of the law. So some people seem to have managed. So what you see here, there's a discontinued jump around nine months after passing of the law in August 2007. And that's, that equates to 3.5% of the pre-reforming. What you have to bear in mind, this was not communicated as a policy that's, oh, you better like, get your chance now because we're going to get rid of this in two years. This was rather sold as a long-run policy, but some people managed to immediately increase the, be successful in conceiving a child. And many more will have tried, obviously, as well. I also see a drop in abortions, small drop in abortions or quarterly abortions. I do not get better data. So also in abortions, there seemed to be some effect and then I also looked into IVF treatments, and they really increased. They were stable up until 2006, and they jumped up between 2006 and 2011, and they increased by 33%. That might have been a trend, but I think this stark increase between the year prior to the reform to after, that might have just be a sign of increasing willingness to conceive a kid. Yeah? This sort of like 18 months after the reform, there sort of seems to be a trend break. Like sort of you mean stop. here? Yeah. Uh, we don't know. It might just be a general trend or something. That's true. So I also saw there's in the first. So this actually mirrors the sort of the increase in first birth and the second and third actually go down a little bit. So I do not want to read too much into it, no, because we normally want to concentrate on this. But that might just be some sort of seasonality or economic, you know, cycles or something. I should account for, or I do account for in the in the different different analysis. Okay, so so this data I just I just showed you. The, so this is basically the monthly birth rates which were constructed from vital statistics. In the vital statistics, I do not have information on educational income, obviously. Yeah? It's just administrative data. So this was uh, what I showed you now is there was basically some descriptive evidence that there was an increase in conception overall, and this increase equates to a so there's really sh sharp increase um, around that cutoff month, which translated to an increase in the number of births to around 2,300 kids in that year. Okay, it's not huge, but there seems to be something here. So what I do for my main analysis, I use pension data. So this is admin microdata on insured persons from the German pension insurance. So this is data so far from 2004 to 2007 there's always a time lag when, you know, with, with data availability. I mean, I've started this, um, this project, unfortunately, a few years ago, so I <coughs> hopefully get some more data now, but this is cross-sectional data with a three-year panel dimension. It's not as good as the Scandinavian data you would get, but um, at least in the pension data, the advantage here is um, over and above the other social security records, people, even at Harvard, they, they work with um, like New German uh, Social Security Records data. Here we have precise information on birth by months. So 
extrapolated and we get, we cover more than 90% of birth, which are reported in the vital statistics. So we lose on our 10% of the population. So why is this so? Because everyone, we only include everyone with contributory period towards pensions. So that means self-employed and civil servants are not in the data. So obviously I would undersample the really high educated women. And this is why I was saying that in my data I have this probably lower share of really the real high earners because you might imagine, you know, you don't have professors in there. I mean, they are already at the high earnings end and some, you know, high earning self-employed or something. But it covers around, um, I think around 70% of the German population. So it's not bad. Yeah. And I also, I do some robustness checks using the German microsensors to kind of validate my, my findings. Yeah, and they, they, they go through it. So, so I have um, the 1% scientific use file of this data, so I get 70,000 observations each year. And I have information on labor earnings as well as education. So sample I choose, I have all women aged 25 to 44 <coughs> with positive earnings in the previous year. And here for the next few, um, for the next results, I'll exclude this partially treated year 2007 because some women are treated and some women are still conceiving under the knowledge of the old reform. So I'm excluding this year because you saw that this jump in conceptions happened within that year, okay? So when I exclude women below 25, because most women in, in I would undersample the higher educated women or women who are still in vocational training, but this does not really change the results that much. So what's the idea of the estimation strategy? So as I said earlier, medium and higher earning women, they benefited substantially from the reform. So when you remember this, the graph I showed you before, they were rather on the right hand side, medium and, um, and the medium and right hand side of the earning spectrum, where the lower earning women did not. So I did some simulations, low educated women, they did not really benefit. Medium educated, they, their expected benefits increased by around 4,000 euros and for high educated was around 8,000 euros. So if benefits now affect fertility, what we should observe is a relative increase in the fertility of women who are benefiting strongly versus the women who are not benefiting strongly. Yeah? So it's just a comparison of two groups who are benefiting differentially across time. That's basically what it is in a nutshell. So now with earnings to, to values high and low, what we would do, we would just compare the between cohort changes in fertility of high versus low earners in a simple difference and difference framework. So I'm going to show you some graphs which, which actually do this, but instead what I do, I, I want to exploit the full variation in the intensity of the treatment because benefits changed even within across education groups. And um, so I, instead of a simple different diff, I exploit the variation in intensity in treatment in the spirit of this AER paper by Dahl and Lochner, who, which is a continuous difference in difference design, basically. And I'm going to, to show you on the next slides what, um, what the empirical strategy is. So what you do is I estimate a linear probability model. Yeah, so I have the probability you have a <coughs> child for woman I in calendar year T on um, account for simulated real expected parental benefits, BIT, and I account for a vector of observed women's characteristics. This is very flexible age dummies, state dummies, also year dummies, and then um, a function of the pre-birth earnings to account for the fact that high-earning women simply have lower probability um, than uh, to have a child 
than the um, than the low ending women. Yeah. So so this basically here this phi function is is basically I'm accounting for this um, instead of using a high education or low education dummy as we would do in a normal different diff. Okay. So the expected parental benefits BIT they vary over time due to the policy reform. So pre-2007, these BITs are fixed-rate payments. And post-2007, BITs are, is a deterministic function of a pre-birth net earnings, as I showed you before. So, so here. Could I ask a question of clarification? Yeah. So you're basically saying, instead of using education level, you're, you're using pre-birth earnings. Is that, is that what you were saying? I'm doing both, yeah. So both. in the first step, I'm actually using the continuous and different diff. I use the pre-birth earnings of the woman, <coughs> and I basically look at changes along, differential changes along the earnings distribution here. And I also provide you some graphical evidence, and I have some different diff of comparing the change in for high-educated women versus low-educated, medium versus low. Yeah? And um, you can actually combine these two in an, in an instrumental variable strategy, but I'm not showing the results here. Okay, okay. Um, okay, so. So now with this fully flexible but time invariant phi function, only the cross-cohort variation in BIT induced by the reform identifies beta zero. So what the phi function actually does, it does account for the fact that generally women with different earnings also have a different propensity to have a child, but BIT varies over time. So what I basically assume that any changes now in the, in the propensity to have a child across education, across earning groups in this case, comes to the reform, comes to this effect of changing BIT. So basically the central identification assumption is that the relationship between the fertility decisions and women's net labor earnings in the counterfactual state of not having reform would have been constant over time. Yeah? That basically the, the differences across these earnings group in absence of the reform would have been the same. And what's actually changes the propensity to have kids now is simply the reform. That's the identifying assumption of the, of the approach. Yeah? So suddenly, if we had some differential trends in fertility assumptions at the same t um, decisions at the same time, that would um, screw up my, my result. So what does beta zero measure? So beta zero measures the incentive effect of an increase in the total parental benefit transfers a woman would be entitled to. So that basically means you take a woman's earnings and you basically simulate this is what you could get. How do you react? It does not mean that the woman takes up all of this, these benefits, but what we find is that the benefit take-up rate, even for high-income women, they take 11.2 months of leave. Yeah, they nearly take the full amount of leave they can actually, they're entitled to. So this is an intention to treat effect in some econometric speak, but um, it's really like a treatment effect here, okay? So let me just show you the sort of disc discretized version of this approach, what I'm doing here. So here what I did, I sliced the earnings distribution into 10 intervals here, yeah? So each point is kind of the earnings interval here, it's 3,000 to, um, um, so here this would basically be um, 3,000 to, um, um, to 6,000 here. Um, so all women who actually fall into this net income bracket, and I just plot the midpoint here. 
And so basically what I'm showing on the, in the left-hand side picture, I show the increase in the birth probability post-reform versus pre-reform for the different groups. So here the median along this wage distribution, the median earnings around 7,300 euros gross. So that would actually be around here. So what we see is for women, it, below the median income, there is not much of a change. There's no statistically significant change in the probability to have a child. Yeah. What, what actually something seems to be happening here is for women beyond median earnings. Even in the highest earnings group, I still find an effect. What we should bear in mind here is that this, this uh, measures the probability in birth. It does not control for the amount of money these women get. So here we see that this kind of, um, this seems to be, be fairly constant here, the effect on the, birth on, on the probability you have a kid. If we look in the right-hand side and the increase in benefits post-reform, yeah, so this is basically, this just plots how the average benefits for each income bracket, how that changed with the reform, we see that there's not much of an effect here in the benefit level for the low-income women. Hence, they do not react. But then this is an increasing function in net income. Yeah? So net income here increases, but here these women do not seem to, they seem to be more costly to incentivize to have a kid. Yeah? Per thousand euros here we get a, a smaller effect. Okay? So what's the finding here, or the takeaway? The fertility here for women beyond median earnings seems to have increased due to the reform. So we want to put this, if I basically just want to, what I basically do is I draw a line through this and I estimate an average effect. What I get is um, that a, an effect, an increase in 1,000 euros in total expected benefits increases the probability in a given year to have a child by 0.4 births per 1,000 women. That does not sound very high, but if we relate it to the um, mean of the, um, the pre-reform um, pre mean of birth, this is an inf increase of 1.2%. Or differently put, 5,000 euros increase in expected benefits raise the probability to have a child in a given year by 6%. It's a reasonably high effect. So my results basically at the lower end of what has been found in the literature, which is focused on low-earning women, yeah? which we would expect. They're probably less elastic. Okay, so just show you how the effects by education. Um, so here I just show this graphically, and I plot how does the birth probability vary over time for medium educated with respect to the low educated on the left hand side, and for high educated with respect to low educated on the right hand side. So here, the, what we can see here, it, it takes for high educated, it takes a while for this to be statistically significant, but the effects here are very big. So the parameter estimates, the reduced form effects are actually fairly high on this, on this side here. So what we see is that the birth differential, the probability of kids increases from 2008 onwards for medium educated versus low educated, as we would expect, and increases even more for high educated because they receive higher benefits. Farther really big, so it's kind of hard. 
is not statistically significant yeah. with the trends, yeah. Because I can see how that might be possible in that like technology advances and most people who are probably gonna be able to take those technological advances are medium or higher educated, right? So there could, I don't know, I'm trying to think of what your idea is. So I'm still, yeah, so, yeah. so basically here you are, you're counting for the fact or you basically, um, the identifying assumption is that the, that the time trends would have been the same between exactly. these education groups. Yeah. I do not find any evidence that there was a differential trend between education groups. That's at least statistically, yeah. So, it's, so if I just give you, so here if I just put this into regression, so this is the diff, and diff estimate for medium educated, how much more does, on average, post-reform, how much does the probability <coughs> to have a child increase for medium educated? It's an effect of 6%. And for, for tertiary educated, it's an effect of 13% versus the baseline. So it's a reasonably high effect. This actually matches with the um, results I get um, from the previous analysis when I use earnings. Okay, so now we might want to know um, what I looked at so far is, is only the short run effect. So the, I only have um, four, um, uh, four post-reform years in my data. What some women might do is they know that this will be in place, so they might just delay fertility. So maybe I underestimate the effect. Or some women might say, okay, I have my child early, and then I stop. I stop earlier. That might also be the case. So now I'm going to show you some, some sort of reasoning on whether we might get some indication for for a permanent effect in fertility and also which groups, which age groups and which parities, meaning at which margin of childbearing we actually see an effect. So here, um, as I said before, the, what we do know from this like reduced from analysis, the full reform effects we would only know once all the women would end their fertile cycle, which is impossible. I would still have to wait and then you need a structural model. No one would believe you're identifying assumptions anymore. So the potentially the full reform effect is not captured within the short post-reform period. What I do though now here, um, I look at different results by age groups. So what I do find, I do find effects for ages 30 to 34 onwards. And um, when I actually relate this, the numbers here, so there is actually a fairly strong effect for the age groups 39 to 39 as well as age groups 40 to 44. So here the point estimate is of course small, but the underlying probability is very low. So in terms of the pre-reform probability, there's an increase um, for each thousand euros paid, an increase in the pre-reform mean fertility by 5.1%. Yeah. So what I do see here is also for the older women who are at the end of their fertile cycle who cannot delay much more. For these guys, I also see a strong and at least this gives me some form of measure on completed fertility. So these here react, and they seem to end up with more fertility. Okay. So that's the only indication I would have that there is an effect on completed fertility. <coughs> so now, um, just briefly, I'm, if I have time, I can show you the results as well. Now I basically split this up by birth order and age groups. So what do I find? So here I can only do the parity analysis for education groups. So I rely on the microcensus data, and because the other data set, the pension data, does not allow me to differentiate between parities, between first, second, and third child. 
So what I do now, I basically look at um, what happened to the age at first birth for high educated women. That seems to have decreased by 4.8 months. So on average, they give birth for the first time at age 32. I think this is higher in, in Germany than in what we would see here. For low educated women in Germany, it's 28 for the first birth. And um, so the age at first birth decreases by 4.8 months. And the age at second birth increases, okay? And I'm going to split this up and explain you why this is so. So the probability to have a first birth by the age 30 to 35, um, sorry, increases. And um, the age at first birth decreases by 4.8 months. So these women, high educated women, 30 to 35, they seem to start childbearing earlier. So there's something which is called, which the demographers call a tempo effect. Usually if people start their childbearing earlier, they also tend to end up with more kids as they completed fertility. So this is an indi indication if you find a tempo effect, there's likely to be an effect on completed fertility. Secondly, we see that the probability to have a second child age 40 to 45 increases. And this basically drives the effect of the age at second birth. So now the 40 to, 40, 40 to 45 year old increase in the birth probabilities, we are wondering what is this driven by? Are these childless women who then go for the first child or is it rather an adjustment on the intensive spectrum, meaning that these are women who have a kid, they just go for another kid. And that seems to be the likely margin. People would probably not go for a first kid, but they might just say, okay, it got cheaper, now I just get a second kid. And that seems to happen. <laughs> Yeah, so women are more likely to have two children post-reform. So that's, that's the quantum effect. So actually when we compare the, the baby gap, I showed you on the first slide, I showed you that there is a strong difference in um, childlessness rates between low and high educated. But there's also a strong difference in the higher um, quantities between low and high educated. So the majority of high educated women, more than 53%, only have zero kids or one kid. And it's, I think, 35 or 38% for low educated who only have small or equal to one child. Yeah. So the large baby gap in birth beyond the first child, which is 15 percentage points before, that seems to be likely to narrow due to the reform. Yeah. So it's not really, young, young women seem to start earlier so maybe there is an effect eventually on the, on the childlessness rate, so drop in that. But the effect we see for the older women seems to be driven, the quantum effect seems to be driven by women now opting for a second kid. Okay. That's what we see. So just to conclude, what, we, what I find here is a discontinuous increase in overall fertility rates as a response to the reform. Then I basically just decompose the effects into different responses by earnings groups who are differently affected and education groups. And I find strong effects on fertility for women above median earnings. The fertility of better educated women increases relative to lower educated by 13%. I seem to find some evidence for completed fertility effects for older women. And find tempo as well as quantum effects so, um, for high educated women. So just in a nutshell, what these earnings-related benefits do seem to do, they seem to be a successful means to reduce this disparity in fertility rates 
between different socioeconomic groups. Okay, thank you very much. Maybe if I, don't know if you want to, maybe you take questions or do you want to see the results on the fatherhood acknowledgement or? I think it's really that's cool. Yeah. So so this is I actually mean, unless any, maybe, maybe we should ask if anybody's got questions that they want to follow up on this before we transition. Is that all right? Is yeah, that, yeah, of yeah. course. Oh, I think over here there's a question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've, in the robustness checks, I've also done some stuff where I basically put everything in logs, which is then interpreted as a, as a percentage change, and the results is still very similar. So then, um, then the interpretation of the estimates changes, but I've also expressed the whole thing is not as a change in, in total, total money received, but as a change in replacing um, income as well. So I have, yeah, you can express the model in two different ways. So I have looked at this. I don't know if that, yeah, so, so, so now what they even did, and I, um, in 2012, they actually cut the benefits for, for people who are on Social Security. So they were actually not getting this anymore. And that would be very interesting to look at the effect on a drop in fertility rates, which I haven't done yet. So this was kind of, you no know, sort of um, tag your second question, because you think those people are very, money there really was really scarce, and they really react to it. yet. Um, the first question about the packaging and childcare, of course I, just to be brief here because it's a short talk, in a one half hour talk I go through like two slides of the whole reform, but it's actually fairly complicated and I will just confuse everyone. Mm -hmm. There was this paternity, um, the, the, the parental, um, these, these daddy months which were introduced as well additionally, and there was changing in the, in the timing, and which I've also model in the paper, but did not present. Um, and um, and also there were um, there was an increase in childcare availability um, in um, what's it called for for one to three year olds, like the smaller ones. And um, there was a law being implemented which basically guaranteed mothers access to these spots from 2014 onwards. So that actually led to an increase in childcare plans already at the sort of end of the period which I'm looking at. Um, how I can address this is that I find, I, I do a heterogeneity analysis by East and West Germany and I find actually stronger effects for East Germans who are more likely to go back usually to the, to the faster to the labor market because of you know, different social norms. So that's the sort of socialist inheritance here 
that women are just working. If you're not working, it's if you're seen as, you know, you're not seen as a sort of productive member of society. So generally, the cost of having kids for East German women, I think, were lower because of the social norms. And childcare, there was childcare availability was always high, but even there, I would find an effect. And it's not clear how the childcare availability would actually differentially affect the high educated women, because usually when there was scarcity, high educated were given access, and the reforms normally, the enrollment of the, 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 the rollout of childcare actually benefited the medium and lower educated usually. So this would actually bias my findings downwards. But it's a good point. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering, do you know how how well informed we can expect the kind of lower in the lower income earners are in this sample about this kind of policy? Because I can I can think of a scenario where if they are less informed about this policy or they just have less time to kind of look at it and understand that that's that they have the potential to have all these benefits from increased benefits from having kids, then while you might see a narrowing in the short term of this baby gap, then as they become more informed about this policy, that trend may not continue in the future. Okay, so what you mean is maybe they would they would not react immediately in the lower educated, yeah. but they would reduce their fertility potential even more over time. Yeah. I mean, that might explain the effect why the heterogeneity was sort of increasing over time, that people were becoming more aware of this, this policy, because actually, quite frankly, I was very surprised how people could understand all of this. So yeah. German law is very complicated. You know, most of tax law, I think 60% of tax law in the world is written on German tax law because it's so complicated. So even this, looking at this reform, and there were so many like different exceptions, and if you were on this level and this level, you get you get slightly different treatment, the tax code changes, and actually to implement all of this was very complicated. And so they had their benefit calculators for people to, um, you know, to, to just enter their earnings and, and their benefits and so on. And then you can actually get the numbers out. That's how I simulated the, 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 um, the, the, um, the maternity benefits that you expect. But I think usually people, this, the social security offices would also inform you about this. And it was widely discussed in the media. So. Have you ever considered a control? It looked like there was. It looked, looked like you, you had this graph that showed mm -hmm. that um, th this was sort of increasing benefits or something like that based on income, and then mm -hmm. but then you showed that the, it looked like there was more of just a just like a discontinuous jump. It's almost like a step function. The okay. effect on actual fertility is that is that even 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 though there's sort of like a linear yeah. increase mm -hmm. in what the benefits that would be, very there good. was more like a step function yeah. increase in fertility and i just wonder if you thought about did you did you did you think about um, having every like a control related to changes in like improvements in fertility technology or anything like that that might account for you know particularly these older the older women and the second children and you know even just like some sort of indicator of like in that year average like births per treatment or something like that so usually that would be an endogenous outcome to account for that so they could they i would i, I was including for differential age effects by education groups and what you meant is so the way i interpreted this this sort of non-linearity and the probability of a kid is if we divide this left hand side graph by the right hand side graph we would get the expected 
the expected fertility increases per thousand euros. And that basically decreases over time. So it's just above median earnings, the women become more and more expensive to compensate to have a kid. Right, right. That's, that's how I interpret it. So then, um, so, so I discussed this in the paper. There's basically sort of decreasing returns to the same monetary input um, with increasing income. Right, but, so but, then you, but then you show, but, but yes, and then, um, but, then, and then, but then I thought you were also then showing um, additional gains, particularly at the higher end. Where did I miss you? I mean, maybe I missed. There, there were gains in in total. There were gains on due the to higher, the reform the, for the higher educated, though. Also for the higher educated, but the higher educated were. They were somewhere above median earnings, right. but what you have to think, yeah. So, so I get you. This is so econometrically speaking. The I mean, maybe I'm conflating education and income, but I'm so, just so to education. Those two things. No, so usually education way. If you if you basically use education, you would have median earners here. So the medium educated would be around the median earners, and the higher educated would be rather say on the highest third of the income distribution. But we do not put that much weight. There are not many women at the right hand side of this. Okay. So amongst the edu higher educated, we would basically put more weight on the sort of upper third of the earnings distribution, not really at the right-hand side tail. Okay. Yeah. So it weighs the, the weighing of basically the, 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 the earnings group is a bit different across these approaches. Okay. And that's why you look at it both ways. I look at it both ways. I think it's also quite... Um, also, for demonstration purposes, I think the education group differences are interesting um, because it, it relates more to this to the intergenerational inequality literature that uh, education of the mother actually has strong effects on kids. And it's a bit easier to show, yeah. and also education is not is assumed to not be able to be influenced by this reform immediately, whereas with net earnings, I cannot instrument, I do not have net earnings for a long, long time period before the reform, so we might be worried there's some endogenous adjustments. So then the identification labor police would step in and say, yeah, it's, um, this, you can't do this. So this is also a bit of a robustness check, really. Thank you. Yeah. So you, you're raising a very interesting point because at the moment when we interpret it in the ways of increase in benefits, that's a direct effect. Some of this increase we see in the problem in in the fertility rates might also come through a sort of um, what I would call like a paradigm shift or a sort of evaluation of children having improved. That now the narrative is oh it's good for high education educated women to have kids. It should not be an impediment anymore, and that also leads to more changes in the workplace. Now it's it's it became a bit more. People, employers are more aware of the fact that now they have to accommodate also for so family concerns of women. So something which might also be captured in there are these changes through the phrasing or through the legal changes on the social norms in the society. 
as an economist, it's always as soon as you talk about social norms, like, you know, um, it's, it's a little bit complicated. So that's why I'm downplaying it, because people always told me to, but I agree with you. I think there's a lot of other stuff going on. The valuation of having kids probably increases in this reform. Yeah. Were, were there any critiques of the policy sort of as it was being proposed or first passed as being sort of an upwardly redistributive social policy? So yeah, there were two. The, the interesting thing is actually it's it's often pushed. I think also in Scandinavia, it's also more the left-leaning parties who are pushing this. When you think about unemployment insurance, we are not giving fixed-rate payments. We're compensating women for their foregone. For, we're compensating unemployed workers for their foregone earnings. So usually most governments, governments they pay say seventy percent of earnings for a year to replace it. Then you could also argue, okay, this is somehow redistributive. Why don't we just you know, give everyone the same amount of money. And I think if you, if you kind of put it in terms of insurance mm -hmm. against lost earnings, then it might seem a little bit less problematic or something. But there was clearly some discussion about this for so some sort of um, 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 very like left-leaning circles or unions that have actually criticized this reform that it's very highly um, redistributive yeah. towards the, the, the higher, higher income people. Especially now, with after the cuts of the government of just cutting it for the social security, uh, for the uh, for the unemployment um, <coughs> benefit recipients. Can we see a little on the phone? So, so I just. Or did, did, did we get interrupted? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask you later. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, the question is, it was easy. It's, why did you consider an increase of five thousand and not another amount? So it's the average, or? Mm, yeah. So, so on average. The average increase was around 5,000, I should have said that. So that's why I kind of wanted to benchmark it too. Yeah. And then in the like a slide, you consider 1,000. Is that correct? Or? Yeah, so, so usually, so I've, I've modeled the benefits on the right-hand side in terms of 1,000 units of 1,000 euros, and then I just scale it up to have some form of comparison point because 5,000 equates to, so I just multiply the, the effect by five, basically. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, so that's a, a so we're currently looking at, so you have this paid leave reform, and we're looking at fatherhood acknowledgement. So just a little bit of background. So we all know the share of unmarried mothers is rising in, across all OECD countries, and that's also mirrored by an increase in the share of children, which are just growing up with single mother households. Yeah? So now, what is paternity acknowledgement? So usually, if, you give, if you're the father of a child and you're married, you are, even if you're not, you're the father of a kid. So then that also comes with all strings attached. You have to pay for that kid, you know, you have to, if you divorce, you have there some, some, some payments to, um, for the mother and for the child. And establishing paternity is a crucial means for non-resident unmarried fathers to secure the support of the fathers and also promote some greater involvement. So usually it's shown that if, if fathers are acknowledged the kid, they're also more involved and so on. So in the US, there's some policies I think some paternity recognition policies which have been implemented in hospitals. And Maya Rosin Slater and the AJ applied, she has a paper on this where um, she looks at um, the effects on paternity recognition and actually the, 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 there's not that much of an effect of these hospital, in-hospital recognition policies. So in Germany, you just I looked at the data and it's actually really interesting. When I compare kids' outcomes, um, by fatherhood acknowledgement, so 
status, it's strongly associated with higher socioeconomic status and also with better birth outcomes. So the, the difference in birth outcomes between married and unmarried women is, is half of what it is within the unmarried group because between fathers who acknowledge and fathers who do not acknowledge. Yeah? So it's strongly correlated to birth outcomes, which I think is very interesting. So it's not actually, we're not, maybe we should, okay, it's hand-waving now, but maybe we should not be so concerned about this whole unmarried thing, but it's really, are these guys involved or not? So um, now, often when we think about social policy, you know, there's widespread concerns with transfers to unmarried mother, it will erode the traditional family, and it might just reduce father's involvement because we're basically um, increasing the economic, um, um, improving the economic conditions of the woman, it might, in, it might actually increase out of wedlock birth, which I do not find any evidence on. So we analyze how this major paid parental leave reform affected paternity acknowledgement using some admin birth records. In these administrative birth records, I have some proxy for whether the father is on the birth record, which he can only be if they show this fatherhood acknowledgement certificate. That's basically so what could be the mechanisms driving this? So why do we assume an effect of this, ref this policy reform, which I've shown you, on paternity acknowledgement? So there could be two channels, and we're still trying to differentiate these two channels. There could be a cost channel. So basically, the reform substantially increased average leave payments to mothers, in particular women who have been working before. So this is something which I call the cost channel. So that basically just it gives women more money that reduces the cost to have a kid for the father, probably, because he has to provide less money for the household. Um, sorry, I'm moving around too much, <laughs> I think. Um, so, so A, that's a cost channel. Additionally, there are these reserved two months of leave to fathers, these daddy months. So it might be this paternity leave channel. It's, it's, so I'm still trying to find, find out about this. I, at the moment, it sounds like the a paternity acknowledgement was not a prerequisite for taking paternity leave. But that might be another channel. So maybe is that possible that fathers now who really wanted to look after the kid, they actually sign up that this is their kid. But I'm not sure if these are the marginal fathers. I think these sort of good fathers who are now actually moving to looking after the kid, they might have actually accepted paternity anyway. So I think we are sort of hypothesizing the cost channel is really the driving thing here. So um, okay, so just graphically, I'm, I'm doing this on microdata now, but what, I, what we do now is, I've described before that from the 1st of January onwards, women who gave birth after 1st of January, they were subject to the new reform. They suddenly saw this large increase in benefits, whereas women prior giving birth, prior to the reform, they were just getting much lower benefits. So, and also, when these women conceived, they did not know about the about the reform. So there was no sort of selection into fertility yet on this. Yeah? So that's why I'm actually looking at, at nine months post-August 2007. So what do we see here? So this basically just shows the residual share of paternity acknowledgements again after seasonality again. It's, in, it's, it's interesting how there's seasonal effects in births and that seems to translate also in some months. Some kids who are born some months, their guy is more willing to Accept paternity acknowledgement, which is probably correlated with socioeconomic status differences. 
So what we see here that the reform increased paternity acknowledgement for unmarried mothers by 1.5 percentage points. Okay, so I find the positive effects for all but very young mothers. So for all age groups, 25 to 39. And then further on using, um, we do not have in this data information on pre-birth earnings, but we know whether women were working or not. Women who are working on average benefited. Women who were not working before, they lost out potentially. The effect is really driven by the effect, by the women who were working before i.e. the paternity acknowledgement increases for those fathers who were, um, whose partner actually saw a strong increase in maternity leave benefit payments. So that seems to be an implication that the cost channel is really at work. So it's kind of what yeah, we are we're doing. Sorry, took too much time. No, no, you didn't. You didn't at all. Uh, not at all. That is so interesting. I was just curious where we were. Um, oh. If you have any ideas on, on this, because that's very, very um, new kind of work in progress. And I, d I really don't know how this is going to fly, because it's a very non-economic topic, potentially. But What's the mechanism of paternal acknowledgement? Is it, like, how does the paternal acknowledgement work? OK. Yeah, I should have I said that, actually. <laughs> so, mm, usually, if you want to acknowledge the kid, you actually go to something which is called family office or something. And you normally assign a document that you are the father, and then they read out all the strings attached to it. So basically, the kid can get inheritance from you, but you also have your financial responsible for the child, and so on. So it's basically a legal contract you are, you are signing. So it doesn't just happen you know, at when the woman gives birth? It can actually happen at the hospital as well, but I think in Germany it's very common to do it at the local offices. Okay. So I still have been in touch at the Mannheim in my, you know, at my home university with the local. So it was actually very funny at the local office. I I, I just asked them how does this process work, and she, the, the caseworker, told me, oh, you should just visit. And then I came to office, and there were these two people sitting there, and we had like like little boxes of chocolate around. Said, oh, I don't know, you can see how this works. So I was basically, um, you know, it was. Um, I was sort of witnessing how this how this process was actually working, and these two people have agreed. Um, so it was like twenty minutes or something, and then you get the certificate, and that's what you actually have to when you when you hand in within I think a month after giving birth, you have to um, you have to um, hand in to these authorities. You also have to hand in this birth certificate, and with that, if you um, with that, you have to provide this evidence of paternity acknowledgement, and only in that case, the father will be on the birth certificate. So there might be some accept paternity acknowledgement later on, which I do not capture. Okay. They additional. Two, so basically, this concept of these daddy months is that it's two additional months. So fathers could always take more leave, but it's usually the mothers who take the leave, at least in the very short run, in, this, in the short run period here. So in 2007, 18% of mothers eh, or fathers took um, this paternity leave, and more than 90% only took two months. Do you, do you have any way of um, knowing what the fathers are doing with their paternity leave? 
So now we're getting to this. So I just applied for the individual level records for these benefits. And then you can actually see how much did both people earn, were they married or not, are they taking this together? Because what often happens, so the cliches, and I think that applies to Scandinavia as well, the high educated fathers, they take more time off and then you go on a road trip in Australia. Mm. <laughs> or in the US, that's what one of my colleagues did. So that's the kind of cliche, but I think a lot of people don't have these means to do that. But, um, so often they would take the time together with the mother at the end of the leave spell. But some of them actually take it 12 months, so for the 12 and 14 months after birth as well. That also seems to be the case. So I'm going to look into this, yeah. Um, and that, and the other leave is maternity only, it's not parental leave? It, it is, it's, it's, I call it maternity leave because 95% yeah. of cases it's a woman taking it, but it is accessible to fathers. What seems to have happened, so that can be shared freely. So if you wanted it, it's, it could be your father could take 12 months and two months could be, could be reserved for, uh, for the daddy months could be the mommy months. Oh. But yeah. so it's free like so it's shiftable. So it's primary caregiver and secondary? Yeah, it's basically primary and secondary oh. caregiver, yeah. Yeah, and I think that works like it's the same as in Scandinavia. Because I wonder if this data would see, would have any effect on, I mean, I'm assuming that probably there aren't a lot of men who are taking a lot of these parental leave, or that's what it seems like from data from other countries. But um, I wonder if there's a decrease in the amount of time that even that even the men who do take parental leave are taking as a result of the women earning more money now. Um, so before that, the daddy months didn't exist. So before that, 3.5% of men took leave, and then it jumped up to 18%. Yeah, so it did increase. I cannot look at the fathers because in the pension, birth for women only only counts as pension points um, for women. So basically women are comp compensated in the German pension systems for having kids, and fathers are not. You might be not debate why, so. This is so did you look into how the businesses reacted to more highly educated, better jobs, women were taking more time out of the workforce? Is that more problematic? So interestingly, there's some evidence, so I didn't look at the labor, labor market effects in this paper, and, but there's a bit of work on this, and actually what seems to have happened is um, many women now, so the high educated women now took time off for 12 months, but overall there was a positive labor supply effect because most women took the two, I didn't, I didn't get into specifics, but pre-2007, benefits, could be taken for two years. And there was a one-year option, but the total amount of benefits was lower than the two-year option total when you took it. So what, what it seemed to have happened is the, high, the higher educated, they all now take 12 months out, but on average, women return back closer to this 12 months after giving birth or than 24 months now. So there is some form of labor supply adjustment as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, so um, there's some interesting Swedish data that you could maybe uh, look at, which has like they interview families about their intentions to take parental leave, and then they look at the actual outcomes. So in terms of intentions, there's actually lots of fathers who say before they have a child, like, oh, we're going to split, I'm going to take out leave, but then they actually don't. So in terms of signing yeah. up, or I think that could be an interesting channel, even if they don't end up taking it, and they yeah. do work mm -hmm. uh, part of the income distribution, they might still have the intention. So there's data to like 
substantiate that. So you mean you, you can kind of also verify the intention with the actual yeah, leave taking? Yeah, I, mean, I expect like, these unacknowledged births to maybe be like mothers in the upper end of the income distribution and have enough money to have a child on their own mm -hmm. and there seems to be no recognition there. I mean, I wouldn't expect. And then you have the lower part where you yeah. don't, the cost channel wouldn't be important because they actually don't get yeah. a lot of more. So what is then, then it, according to your mm -hmm. theory, it has to be that parents don't leave the channel, but okay. then they actually don't take up parentally. So maybe that's because they have the intention. So maybe we can talk a bit a bit more, but I'm a bit tired now. Like, yeah. I, I just want to, no, because it sounds like an amazing point. I really want to understand this because that's where we have to go next. Mm kind of just differentiate the channels, but sorry, I kept everyone way too, too Not long. at all. That is <laughs> so wonderful. Okay. Uh, that was really fabulous. Please join me in thanking There are a lot of gears turning in the room. There are a lot of people thinking. It's really wonderful. Well done. Thank really you very terrific. much. Um, please join us next week. Lori Rudman, who's a professor of psychology at Rutgers University, is going to be presenting on barriers to female leadership. Does race matter? So doing some of that important intersectional work. So thank you all very much. Yeah, that